This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. We are still locked down, and although we might be locked down in Australia, we're definitely speaking to some very interesting people all across the world. Yeah, it has been great. And although we have tried to do this interview before, but technology being technology has meant that we've had to recap on this one. So lockdown has proven to be a little bit difficult for us. But nonetheless, the show must go on and very excited for this episode. We have a fantastic guest. Before we introduce him, I thought I would just run through a couple of highlights from his resume because it's pretty impressive. So our guest graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University with a degree in economics and received an MBA from the Harvard Business School. He's a founder and managing director of alliedcrowds.com, which is a leading directory and aggregator of alternative capital into the world's 132 lower and middle income countries, which we will explore a bit later. He's a former hedge fund manager who currently serves on the advisory board of alternative investment funds in London, New York, Mumbai, and Hong Kong, And on top of all of that is the author of two books on finance, the first being Money Mavericks, Confessions of a Hedge Fund Manager and Investing Demystified, How to Invest Without Speculation and Sleepless Nights, which we're also going to be exploring. So without further ado, all the way from London, it is our pleasure to introduce Lars Croyer to the show. Welcome to the show, Lars. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me, guys. Now, Lars, that was a long, uh, long resume, and we're excited to get stuck into a lot of it. That just means I'm old. <laughs> Before we do, we we like to start these interviews with a bit of a game, just to get an idea of you know how you're thinking about different investment strategies, different themes, different indexes, and stuff like that. We call the game overrated or underrated, and we throw out an idea and we ask you if it's overrated or underrated, and if you can tell us why. So um, are you up for playing? Yeah, sure. Fire away. Great. Okay. So to kick it off, something that I think will be a bit of a theme in our conversation tonight, overrated or underrated stock picking? Overrated. Why is it overrated? I think it's overrated because way too many people spend too much time and too much money trying to do something that they probably can't do, which is to outperform the markets by active stock picking. That's why it's overrated. So it's my view that, and come back to this, it's my view that the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of investors can't outperform the market. And the sooner they realize that, the better off they'll be. So I don't know if I just pissed off half your uh, listeners. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's true. First question down and you've already pissed off half the listeners. Let's see if we can piss off the other half. (laughs) This is when they all click off, right? (laughs) Well, at least we went out with a bang, right? No. (laughs) Overrated or underrated the S&P 500? Don't have a view. Pass. And also, I I will say to that, not only don't I have a view, but in all my years in finance, I have never met anyone that I felt consistently had a view that was better than than sort of random. Mm. I think if you did, it's a many, many trillion dollar valued index. And you're saying you know better than those all those trillions of dollars, whether it's going to go up or down. It's a pretty bold statement. And if you do, you should become phenomenally rich with that knowledge. And if you don't, then 
something went wrong somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I like that answer. It makes a lot of sense. So next one, as Bryce said, you're based in London and we were talking before the show about the Australian property market and how expensive it is. So we're interested to hear your thoughts on the London property market. So overrated or underrated London residential property? That's a really tough one. I literally just sold my house two weeks ago. So, <laughs> but uh, no, I bought another one, so that's not... I think it's average rated, and I hate to keep hedging my, my answers here, but I think it's, you know, a lot of the high-end property in London is actually bought by people that have dollar economies. And be it, you know, through rich foreign buyers or people in finance and so forth. And so... The prices have actually come down a fair bit in dollar terms. So a, pan, a house that used to cost, uh, you know, hundred pounds would used to cost, say, you know, one hundred and fifty dollars, and now it costs one hundred and twenty-five dollars. And those aren't the exact numbers. So in dollar terms, it's cheaper, even if in sterling terms, it's the same. So I'm not sure that it's overvalued as it perhaps was in the past. So again, I just managed to not answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about backing off that then? Overrated or underrated property as an asset class? Generally overrated, but it's overrated in places where it's done well, right? Because people have a tendency, I think, to assume that properties that go up keep going up. Just like if you go to other parts of the world where properties in real terms haven't moved for 20 years or even gone down a lot, there everyone would on shows like this say, oh, the last thing you want to do in the world is buy a house because they never go up in value. It's almost like a mass delusion sometimes. Now, there are a lot of good reasons to buy a house, one of which is, you know, it's where you perhaps bring up your family, it's where you live, it's all of that. But that's different from an economic argument. And so I think in general, in places where prices have gone up, property, the sort of don't miss out on property is not founded, I think, on, on sort of economic reasons, but almost more the fear of missing out or this idea that, oh, it's going to keep going up and... Um, and I need to somehow get on the ladder. Mm. Uh, if you look at it, and this is when it gets a little boring, if you look at it statistically, there are very few global residential property indices that are that go back a long way. But those uh, that do, well, there's one in the U.S., actually suggests that residential property across a broad array of markets, broad array of time horizons, don't actually outperform inflation by a significant margin. So it's not this sort of gold mine that people often think it is. Now, I know probably the prices are up a lot in Australia, like they have been in the UK. So we're all thinking, oh, dear, dear me, I missed that. And how do I get on the ladder and all that? But that doesn't mean that it will continue to go up. So if you if you manage to offend a number of listeners with the first answer, you've managed to offend most Australians with that answer. So. No, I, no, fair enough. But I, all I'm saying, I don't really know, right? I, I, I don't know. I think one interesting thing, if you if you want to study it, is look at the rental income relative to overall income, or look at rental income from renting a property to the return on capital for if you bought that same property and rented it out. And if your return on capital, if you bought the property and rented it out, is really low, that suggests that you expect to make your money through capital appreciation. And if that's the case, you got to be a little bit careful if you're expecting too much capital appreciation for that trade to make sense. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, does. I I can explain that more if you want. But but that's, I think, that's sometimes a sign of a bubble because it's almost like a lot of people are pricing in future price increases. No, it makes a lot of sense. And when we're talking about companies, if their return on invested capital is less than their cost of capital, then they're considered value destroyers. Whereas in Australian residential property investing, if your return on invested capital is lower than your cost of capital, that's just called negative gearing. So we set it up for success for property investors over here. What could go wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> you should ask your friends in, in Ireland or in Las Vegas or Miami what can go wrong. <laughs> yeah. We called the show Equity Mates for a reason. We're trying to convince Australians that property isn't the only investment class. So we'll, uh, mm. we'll move on from property. And to close out this game of overrated or underrated, there's obviously one big topic on the mind of most people at the moment, and that's coronavirus. So to close this out, overrated or underrated, the impact of coronavirus on the global economy? Underrated, but only because we're 
busy talking about, I mean, rightfully busy talking about health and number of deaths. So the, the, the conversation hasn't moved enough on to uh, the economy yet. So I still think underrated. Yeah, it is going to be very interesting when that conversation really starts to come to the front. So Lars, before we jump into investing demystified and a few other topics we're keen to explore, we always like to get an understanding of a bit about your background and how you came to be involved in finance. Are you able to tell us the story of your very first investment and perhaps any major lessons that you may have learned from that that have helped form how you invest today? Well, I was, I guess, always kind of like a nerdy, frugal kid. So I ended up with savings and I'd always have jobs. I was a dishwasher and delivered news for all the usual jobs and, and had some savings. And I remember early on, my very first investment when, was when I was a very young boy and I got my pocket money and I didn't spend it. And so I said to my dad, like, well, I don't, why don't you hold on to it? And he said, no, you, it's your money. You should have it. And then he said, I said, I, well, I, I don't know where to put it. And he said, I don't know why on earth you would say this, but he said, you should maybe buy a government bond. And he said, it's, imagine you have like a thousand kroner, it's Danish currency. Um, you buy a bond and then every year you get a hundred. And at the end of 10 years, you get your thousand back. I remember thinking, that's crazy. Right. That's a <laughs> you basically do nothing and you get a hundred a year and then you get your money back at the end of 10 years. And in hindsight, it actually was crazy. Right. But this was the 70s in Denmark. And I just remember thinking this idea that you, you know, while you sleep, you're making money. And that was too good to be true. And it turns out, yes, it was too good to be true. <laughs> but it actually isn't perhaps somehow indirectly informed a lot of how you passive investing today is that you don't have to actively do anything in order for your portfolio to be in a good spot. You went from that first investment to Harvard and then to working in finance and you worked in finance mm. for a number of years and ended up co-founding your own hedge fund and it was a London-based market neutral special situations hedge fund. That's a mouthful. <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> I almost stumbled over it then. Can you explain to us what a market neutral special situations hedge fund does? Yeah. And then also any lessons or any particular insights you had from your time working in finance? Yeah. Well, I should say I'm still in finance because I'm on the board of all these funds. But so market neutral means exactly that. So it essentially means that the returns, I mean, so let's start with what is a hedge fund. A hedge fund is essentially an investment fund that can hedge its investments against you know, market movements, a currency movement, interest movements, and so forth. That's when we can talk about how they function, but, but, but sort of think of it that way. So market neutral meant that the returns that we try to generate for investors shouldn't be correlated to movements in the markets. So if markets uh, went up 20% uh, or down 20%, you shouldn't be able to see that in our returns. So that's market neutral. Special situation was... So not used so much anymore, but it used to mean things like merger arbitrage or stub trades or recapitalization or anything where a company was going through some sort of things that made it complex. It wasn't, I don't mean to say complex as in we were particularly clever, but uh, complex as in there was some sort of a corporate restructuring or recapitalizations or legal stuff or or things where it wasn't just these guys make 100 widgets and are they going to make 110 widgets next year? It was different kind of analysis to that. So that's what we used to mean by special situation. So that's it. It makes it so London-based, London-based, market-neutral, special situation, a hedge fund. There you go. Seems so simple now. <laughs> it does. It does. So before you founded the hedge fund, you worked in finance, and then you founded your own hedge fund. Were there any particular insights or any things you learned at that time? And I guess in particular, are there any things that you know, everyday retail investors you speak to just get completely wrong about the hedge fund industry? Well, yeah, I think maybe less so now, but one of the reasons I wrote the first book was that it always kind of annoyed me that the hedge fund industry was by most people deemed to be this sort of wild cowboy place where people made or lost billions of dollars and half of them were driving Ferrari and the other half were Bernie Madoffs. And I felt that the industry I had been a part of was nothing like that. But it also wasn't uninteresting that you had really, really bright people that cared an awful lot about how the world worked. 
trying to make investments that were great risk adjusted returns for their investors. And obviously, when you're a young guy and you start a fund like that, a lot of crazy things happen. I thought I had just a wealth of great stories and anecdotes that didn't involve, you know, $50,000 bottles of wine, but were still really interesting. And so that's why I kind of wanted to tell the story. So that was the background, really. But I'd say one thing, and, and this comes into the second book, but one thing I think a lot of retail investors miss is, first of all, that we're not a bunch of cowboys. Well, some are, but it's like any industry. There are a lot of Muppets when you have 10,000 different funds, right? You'll always find examples of something. But also, how incredibly hard it is to outperform the market. Right? So we had you know, the best minds in finance with the best information, the best access, the best technology, the best and speediest market access. And we you know, were the first call from management, from brokers, from industry experts, from competitors, you name it. And even with all of that, it was very, very hard to outperform. So, you know, you consider all of those advantages and then you compare it to someone trying to do this in their box of shorts from their bedroom. And it's just really bloody hard. It's just really hard with all of those advantages. And what if you don't have them? And this is when people always say, well, look at Warren Buffett. He's sitting in Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah. And I'm like, well, we could do that too and still have all the advantages. Right. And it's like, well, you're missing the bigger picture. And it's like, no, we can do that too. It's not like we're not trying to find different and new ways to optimize these things. So it's just really, really hard. And this is why, in in my view, there is this, um, and then you add to that the fact that there are very few people that have a vested interest in telling you that. Like, who is it really that's interested in telling you that you can't outperform the market? It's sure as hell not the trading platforms. It's not the financial press because they sell their wares by advertising on their platforms. It's certainly not like the active managers, right? Because they're saying, well, give me your money and I'll do a really great job with it. So it's actually very, very few people that are trying to convince investors that they can't outperform the markets. So it's a kind of a thankless, slightly boring role. I mean, even me, I I make no money from, from that. It's just something I... Frankly, I do slightly as a hobby, but there's no money in telling people to stop investing actively in the stock markets. So was that the other half of your listeners? Or just <laughs> <laughs> maybe, but maybe. Well, no, that was the same. Probably the same half as uh, when the same. you so critique stock gone. picking. Yeah, they, they've well and truly turned off. They've unsubscribed by now. But that's all right because I think for the remaining listeners who have stuck with it, there's going to be some really interesting stuff as we turn to investing demystified, which was the book that you wrote to sort of expand on a lot of the stuff that you were talking about there about. Yeah how the overwhelming majority of investors don't have a chance to beat the market. Mm. They can probably save some sleep and uh, save some of their hairline by reducing (laughs) their stress and simplifying their investment philosophy. Mm. Mm. Can you tell us a story or I guess, you know, why you chose to write the book and, Mm. you know, what what some of the key points were in it? The reason I wrote it is quite simple. I wrote this first book about hedge funds and and the publisher came back and said that, uh, you know, it ended up doing quite well. And the publisher came back and said that, you want to write another book. And I kind of didn't want to write another hedge fund book because I didn't want to be like, you know, the hedge fund guy. The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, I certainly <laughs> didn't want to be that guy. Uh, actually, I'll tell you a crazy story. I think I met him, but I'm not even sure. When I graduated business school, I was interviewed. What well, must be him because there's this crazy interview. And he he is like how he's portrayed in the movie, at least that's how I remember him. And and at some point in the interview, he was like, Lars, do you want to be rich? And I was like, well, sure, I guess. I am a Harvard graduate entering the world of finance, so that's a, that's a fair <laughs> bet. Um, and then he said, well, I have a house next to Mary Mika, who's this Morgan Stanley uh, person, and, and, and I'm rich. And I just remember that. And that's a weird thing for someone I interviewed. And later in the movie, it came, or not in the movie, in the book or somehow it came out that this guy had had a house next to Barabika. So that's the only reason I know that I must, I must have been interviewed by him. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but I don't remember anything other than that. Anyhow, so I wrote this book. And I don't do quite well. Publisher comes back and says, do you, want to, you know, do you want to write another book? And I said, sure, but uh, not a hedge fund book. And then I've always been very interested in portfolio theory. 
and um, and sort of the practical applications of it. And and so I wrote the second book, which was essentially was a book about you know how my mom should invest her money or how you know someone like my mom what should they do. And and I thought it was in a really good position because I obviously an academic background in it, but also, uh, you know, I've been very much an active investor in the markets, right? So, so I wrote the second book and, and ended up, funnily enough, doing, selling far more copies than the first one. But interesting, it's the kind of book where none of my friends have read the second one. They've all read the first one because they all think they could beat the market. <laughs> <laughs> I get emails every day from readers of the second one, which is actually really nice. But so in the second one, it's this sort of sense of, well, you, you know, Actually, I think the biggest part of it is that uh, it's almost an emotional thing to embrace the fact that you can't beat the market. And, and we'll talk about what that means. But once you accept that, a lot of things will follow. And so it's actually the, the, the key thing. Not beating the market means a couple of things. It, doesn't, it means you can't pick stocks. You can't better than the market know if Facebook is going to outperform Apple or what have you. You can't pick which of the active managers, so the mutual funds, are going to outperform the market. And then you sort of come to know that maybe one out of eight or one out of 10 of them outperform the relevant market over a 10-year horizon, and you don't know which one ahead of time. And also, you probably can't pick the markets by market time. So right now, you know, markets are down a lot. Are they going to go up or down? If you know when to enter and exit, that's like a gold mine waiting for you, right? But that's highly unlikely you do that. Too. So then the next question, so what should you do? Should you put your money in a, under the pillow? And I argue then that you can, uh, you absolutely should not, by the way, but that you can create an incredibly robust investment, both theoretically but also practical investment portfolio where you combine just two assets. And one asset is an investment in the global equity index tracker. So you get the cheapest and broadest investment in equities you can find. So that might be like a Vanguard or, you know, BlackRock or exchange traded fund. And that's tax optimized for where you are and who you are. And then the other is you find the lowest risk investment you can get your hands on, which in, in your guys' case would typically be Australian government bonds of a time horizon that suits your risk with your, your time horizon. And actually, now you have these two investments, one being the government bond, the other being this equity tracking. And you combine those two according to your, um, your, your individual risk profile. So younger people more typically more risk and older people typically less risk. And you're done. That's it. I don't know how I could write 250 pages about that. <laughs> but then that's sort of the gist of the second book. And of course, you think that, and typically people don't do this enough, but you should think long and hard about how you incorporate your non-investment assets in your investment thinking. And then a lot of people go wrong because a part of it is a rent, you know, the real estate stuff we talked about before, but, but lots of other reasons too. That's sort of the gist of, of what this is. So Lars, I want to play out a bit of a live scenario here and you've given a lot of sort of input into it already, but Ren and I are both fortunate enough to be able to have a bit of cash on the side at the moment and we're looking at either putting money into some active managers directly, not through the stock exchange or alternatively putting the same amount of money into some ETFs or index trackers. Mm -hmm. And the thinking at the moment is, and I'm not speaking directly for Alec here, but we've had these conversations that, you know, in a time like this and when markets do turn down, having an element of active management, you know, with with managers that have good track records Mm -hmm. can be advantageous because they they might be able to take advantage of the market drop more than an index tracker would. Mm-hmm. What is, I guess, the argument against thinking like that? And mm-hmm. how would you think about it if you were in our position? First of all, I, I, I really get it. Like, it's there's this sense that you want someone to do something active. Like, this calamity happens. It doesn't seem right that you do nothing, right? that you simply buy the market. You somehow, like, opportunities out there must be too great for you to simply buy a, a boring index tracker. And so I get it, it's very appealing. Now, let me say a bit, sort of one thing at a time. So there is no evidence and countless studies, but that past performance is an indicator of future performance, right? If it was only that easy, you pick the yesterday's stars, you invest with them and you 
don't do the others and you outperform the market, then that's all we would all do. So that's not the case. This idea that there will be, as a result of this, massive dislocations, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Some companies are going to come out of this flying and others are going to go bust. And if you only knew which ones did what, you would be a rock star. So while that's true, are you the ones that are able to see that ahead of time? And are the active managers you give your money to the ones that can see that ahead of time? And so that, that's where I go into a little bit of statistics and say, can you, after all the fees and expenses of the active managers, reasonably expect them to outperform? And again, historically, it's about one out of eight active managers that outperform the markets over a 10-year horizon because they obviously incur the fees and expenses themselves, but also they charge you a lot, including the fancy ads that you see along the the highway, right? So I would say that's not, in my view, how you should do it, but, but I can certainly see the temptation. So Lars, if we decide then that active management is not the way to go, either personally choosing stocks or entrusting a professional to choose stocks, mm-hmm. and we stick with your sort of globally diversified index tracking uh, fund, mm-hmm. it seems like the best way to I guess you could say get rich slow. Mm-hmm. It uh, it takes time. Yeah. And Bryce especially is extremely impatient. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. he wants to, he wants to get rich very quick. Yeah. <laughs> so one, yeah. one thing that he has been thinking about, what well, we've been talking about on the podcast and some of our guests on the podcast have spoken about is using leverage and especially mm-hmm. using leverage when you're quite young in your career because it really sort of can kickstart the compounding process yeah so how would you think about employing leverage in this strategy that you've written about and that you're talking about leverage is really just another point in the sort of risk spectrum right it's like you want more risk than the market so you gear your investments and you know it's that it's very high risk you can lose a lot of money really really quickly but if it goes well you can make a lot of money really quickly and it really depends how who you are and if you're in a position to tolerate that typically it's a terrible idea because very few people will tell you to do that just because if you lose it all they always people come back and say oh you told me to use leverage and went horribly wrong it's your fault <laughs> so so that's why people don't tell you to do it but you know if you have the capacity to tolerate the risk and you're in a hell of a hurry to make money then for some people sure keep in mind that the leverage for for a lot of these sort of gear products or the leverage is often very, very expensive. So just keep an eye out for that because they're sort of almost loan shark rates. So just be aware of that. And I'd also say to you, like, look, if you want to make money in a hell of a hurry, that's fine. And I would say um, uh, good luck to you, but just be very clear why you think you're making money. I mean, maybe even write it down. Why are you making money? What is it that you know that the rest of the world has missed? And if you can convince yourself that what you know and the rest of the world has missed is is right, then yeah, honestly, good luck to you. Be active. I'm not saying markets can't be beaten. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying the vast majority of investors can't beat the markets. Two different things. Mm. Like I'm not quite the hypocrite. I am involved in active managers, right? And then I mean, yesterday I was on the phone with an active a good friend of mine who runs a very large hedge fund. And you know, my view on a guy like that and was to him and his colleague, you know, if they can't beat the markets, I really don't think markets can be beaten because these guys are pretty smart cookies with an awful lot of knowledge. But some people have it. So if you are that, absolutely. I also think there's a lot of, you know, if you're early in your career, one of the advantages of looking at stocks can be that you learn a lot about the world around you, a lot about companies and industries and geographies. Right? So, so there's sort of a learning part of it that can, that can serve you well. Yeah, I definitely think I understand that last point there that you just become a lot more more curious about the world around you when you're, you know, learning about new companies and new industries and about the differences in different markets and stuff like that. I'm interested in taking a step back though and reconciling the case that you're making around investing demystified and some of your work in hedge funds because look as you said, you are working with active managers and I assume you are selective with the active managers that you work with. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested to know for you, when you're looking at hedge funds that you're going to sit on the board of or potentially going to invest in, what are some of the things that you're looking for that you think are differentiating factors between the active managers that 
have the ability to beat the market and those that will be, mm. you know, middle of the pack losing to the index? That's a good question. I think I'm very lucky in that way that I, right now sitting right by South Kensington in, in London and there are lots of really interesting and smart people that come to London to try their luck in finance and I get to meet a lot of them and I know enough about finance to take a view on how they analyze investments and look at their investment universe. And so what I look for in them is really what is their edge? What is it that they argue is how they make money better than the market? And then I take a view on, is that something I think is reasonable? And if it is, then it's these can be incredibly exciting businesses to be involved with and good fun too. Right? And typically these people will have some sort of an angle that I think is not easy to replicate, or it could even be something they've discovered that they can continue to profit from going forward. So it's not any one thing. It's not like I can tell you that um, you know all companies that start with the letter H will outperform the ones with the letter K. It's not like that. Right? <laughs> if, if that was true yeah, and no one yeah. had ever figured that out, that would be a gold mine. <laughs> right. Think of that. Right. So suppose that was true and no one had figured it out. That would be a gold mine. Right. So let's say there's some funds out there that would have the equivalent. Right. They would have the equivalent, which is that when your stocks go up on Tuesdays and down on Thursdays, if it's the second half of the month, something stupid like that. Right? But let's just say it's true. Well, that's the strategy. It's a pretty crazy one, but that's the strategy, right? So now if someone came to you and said that, you would laugh at them and say you belong in a madhouse. But it's sort of a, just an element of how do you study what they do and how can they convince you that they have investment edge? Some of them is because they insights into industries and companies is just unbelievable. I mean, they know, I would argue, more than management of some companies about industries and companies and what will happen. And others, it's sort of statistical arbitrage where where it is more the kind of, you know, when currencies do this and interest rates do that, then commodities will do this. So that's another type of strategy. And as I said, there are 10,000 hedge funds out there. They do everything you can possibly imagine. Lars, one thing that I think um, a lot of people haven't figured out, but Ren and myself may have, is that podcasts are an investable business. So if you're looking to invest in a podcast, we know just <laughs> the one that's looking for a bit <laughs> of cash to get off the ground. It's a tough business, isn't it? I mean, I mean it's got great cash, no, great cash flow, profit margins. No. <laughs> <laughs> the old driving Ferraris and drinking expensive wine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've been on a number of them and I I think the ones that do well out of it are the ones that start financial advisory businesses on the back of them. That's an interesting business. I was on with a guy here in London a couple of days, a really good guy, and he has a thriving financial advisory business that sort of grew out of his podcast. I think he's the second largest in the UK or something. Yeah, like was that Peter Matthews? Yeah, Peter Matthews. Yeah, we, yeah, we've had him on the show. I just got an email from him half an hour ago. He's a really lovely yeah, guy. Yeah, he's a great guy. No, but he's running a thriving financial advisory business. Right? I tell you what, that's, I think, an industry that will thrive. So even though I'm telling you you can't beat the market, people need financial advice, especially these days, right, to think about their sort of almost holistically their asset base and what they should do and think about their risk and planning and taxes and all that stuff. So. Yeah. Well, we should take this offline. (laughs) (laughs) Before we move on from investing demystified, I just wanted to touch on a more practical side. So just to recap, you know, we've got a, a super simple portfolio to implement, and that is one that is built around a mixture of bonds and cash, and then also a, a world index tracker. And depending on your, your risk appetite will depend on the mix of those assets. A lot of questions we get in the group and our community are around dollar cost averaging and how often you should be buying into the market. And I know it's quite an individual thing, but I'm just wondering if through your studies and academic research, is there like a golden amount of times per year that would be best to average in or how do you think about that? Well, okay, so I don't believe in all of those things, but I certainly can appreciate them. So let's say now you have $100 to invest and it's your only asset you have. And I tell you that you don't know which way markets are going to go, which is you feel is not particularly helpful to hear. But I'm also telling you it's very risky. And you say, oh, that's fine. I can handle the equity markets at risk. That sort of suits because I'm a young person. 
And then when should you put that $100 to use, right? And, and I, all I'm saying is, well, it's risky, but you can sort of historically reasonably expect that with a very long run equity markets perhaps go up 4 or 5% above inflation a year. So the sooner you get started on that compounding, the better. So just put it in. And you're saying, oh, I kind of don't want to do that because what if I'm unlucky? So I say, okay, well, if you really don't want to do that, maybe you just average do four payments of 25 and you will have paid slightly more in commission, but you've lowered the risk of just be really, that you're really unlucky with your timing. So I think that's slightly individual. If you don't feel that way, um, then just put it in and start the compounding and if you can bear the risk. Now, the dollar cost averaging, I, yeah, again, it's, it's my view the markets go up over time, but with significant risk. So now let's say you do it and and uh, you put 25 in and you're sort of ready to put the next 75 in when markets decline. Well, that's going to feel good if markets decline, but what if they don't decline? You missed out on the compounding waiting for them to, in fact, decline. Now, if that's something that suits your risk because you really didn't want to put that much into the markets that you, know, you kind of wanted to wait, then maybe that's fine. But just don't do it because you think you know that the markets are going to do X because you probably don't. So think of it more as is like how to construct a portfolio than a how to uh, yeah sort of game the markets. Mm. Got to get away from all this gaming, <laughs> like all this like no, it's not you know it's a huge temptation. But if you yeah, go gamble or something, go to the casino if you want the excitement. This is real stuff. This is people's money. Right? Mm. It's their savings. Mm. No, it's good. Makes sense. Is there anything I've said so far that doesn't make anyone's life a little bit more boring, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the aim of investing isn't excitement. The aim is to make more money than you started with. Yeah, I mean, it's also, it's why it's important stuff, right? These are people's lives. Their retirement, it's the saving up for stuff that's important to them. And that's important to everyone. Whether you're a company, you're an individual, you're, you know, this is important stuff. And as you see, in the, as a result of the virus, there are a lot of people whose lives will be materially different because of what happened to their investment portfolio. So Lars, I've got one final question on this strategy, and I feel like it's very current given uh, what's happened in the markets and in the economy. For people who have been employing a strategy similar to this for the last few years and have been you know, slowly accumulating a sizable part of their wealth in equities and in a, you know, a broad-based index tracker, when they see something like what happened in February and March of this year and, you know, the value of that sort of gets slashed by 30% in a month, Mm. how should people think at a time like that? And also, is there anything they should do or should they just do nothing at all? So that depends, right? So let's start with that you still don't know which way markets are going to go. But you do know the risk is up a lot. And how do you know that? Well, it sort of seems obvious when you read the press, but there are also indicators of future risks of the market that are tradable and also the historically the most accurate indicators. So if you look at the equity markets, the, the risk before coronavirus and now is like different by a factor of three. So should you do something? Well, you, this asset that you held, it might have declined in value, but the risk of the asset is also up a lot. So can you bear that? Well, that's an individual question. And this is probably where a financial advisor is helpful, right? So your, your $100 might now be $70, but it's also a lot more risky. Now, with higher risk, it's not unreasonable to expect higher future return, but it comes at a risk, right? And nothing, nothing is free. So I would say this is where what you should do is you certainly take stock. But also keep in mind, and this comes back to the correlation, this change in value has probably happened at the same time and at the same for the same reason that your other assets have probably declined in value. And your other assets include stuff like your job. You may even have lost it. Right? Your, your house has probably gone down in value. Private investments, even if they're not marked to market, but they're probably down in value. Some of them anyhow. And so you can use this as an opportunity to think a lot more than people typically do about the interplay between your the value of your various assets, the correlation. Um, which is up massively, right? Like this thing has hit everywhere in the world at the same time. Well, not at the same time, but like, you know, we're all impacted by it. So in, in the past, you know, you could minimize correlation through diversifying your investments. But now, like if you had put some of your money in, I don't know, Germany, then 
they also have the virus, right? I would absolutely encourage people to think holistically about their investment. I know that sounds so zen, but they really should. And certainly think about liquidity and, and gearing, right? Because something like this, liquidity is something people think only about when they don't have it. So be aware of, of that. So don't, that's another reason to not tie your investments up in too illiquid stuff that you don't have access to when you need it. So Lars, moving away from this investment strategy, you work at an organization called Allied Crowds and they're not particularly involved in the financial markets. Yes, yeah, it's probably not so relevant for what you guys do. It's more development organization. Like we try to help eradicate poverty. I am interested though, you obviously are spending a lot of time dealing with people in emerging markets and potentially a lot of time actually physically in emerging markets as well. Is there anything that you think people investing in uh, Western countries get wrong about investing in emerging markets and are there any particular emerging markets that you think are you know, really exciting at the moment? Generally, my interest in them has just been like, I guess I started with the premise that we're all pretty similar. And with the you know, technology, the skills that you attain in, in the developed markets can easily be transferred to emerging markets. And, and so I always thought that like, if you go 50 years into the future, the majority of the world's growth will come from emerging markets, but obviously at a, a huge risk premium too. And so I just thought it's, it's I, I, it sounds silly, but I just sort of like being around growth. I find it exciting, people trying to do things better or improving and and so I started looking more and more at emerging markets and just really enjoyed my time there. I'm very involved with India, which I think is just fascinating and extremely obviously large population with high level of education for a very large number of people and a GDP per capita that's like, is it literally a tenth of what it is in, or, or even less sometimes than it is in some developed markets. So that kind of you know, arbitrage, I think, is, is, is fascinating. Mm. Uh, will that mean that India will do better than other countries? Well, I've been inclined to say no, but I obviously don't really know. Right? Mm. No, sorry, sorry, I've been inclined to say yes, that it will. So, Lars, before we jump into our final three questions for our interview, we always like to now finish with a bit of a bold prediction for 2020, given the circumstances that we're in. Mm. I'm sure it would be different to what you were thinking at the start of the year. So if you were to make... One bold prediction about what might happen in markets over this year or where markets might end in 2020, what would that be? Oh, this, this goes against everything I've just said. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I, you know, so let me start with I don't really know, right? But um, I think markets are going to go up. I think it's turning. I think you see number of deaths. It's mid-April, number of deaths in the Western countries that have taken isolation most seriously early on had flattened or even declined in particularly Spain and Italy. And we have yet to see sort of a magic test, forget about vaccine, which obviously would be brilliant, but a test that would eradicate or, or very quickly isolate people and therefore directly eradicate the coronavirus. And I think there's a decent chance that these things happen. And, and if they do, I think we could all end up seeing this as a you know, horrible challenge to humanity that we addressed and overcame and see markets and the world bouncing back. It'll be different, but bouncing back. And if that happens, I think markets can fly. Now, if it doesn't happen, I think it's right that markets are risky. You know, I think you could see government defaults and large number of corporate defaults and market declining as a result. I'm slightly optimistic. So don't bring me back in a year. <laughs> it's a very divergent range of possible outcomes and it seems largely dependent on what the health outcomes are and then the economic results will follow. So anyway, we'll write your prediction down and we'll be knocking on your door on the 1st of January 2021 and telling you if you got it right or wrong. Yeah, there you go. Do that. Let's, but also preface it with saying, well, he didn't think he really knew. Yeah, that's, all, that's all right. <laughs> that's what it'll say on my tombstone. He didn't really know. <laughs> we never really know when we do our bold predictions and uh, sometimes we luck into them and other times we're incredibly wrong. You know, by the way, it's one of the old inv active investor tricks. Right? The way you do this is you go to 20 people and you'd say to 10 of them, markets are going to fly. And the other 10, you say it's going to bomb. And then you're going to be right for 10 of them. And those 10 you go back to and you do it again. So the next year, Mark's going to fly and Mark's going to bomb. And the five of those, you're going to be right. 
And those five, you say, look, I got a right choice in a row. And then you sell them all sorts of crap. <laughs> That's the whole broker there trick. You go. Well, that, that reminds me, I was uh, reading on Reddit last night, uh, this post that came up that showed a short timeline of Goldman's sort of headlines and announcements that they've made. And I'll just quickly read them because it's it's pretty alarming. December 31, 2019, Goldman declares US economy is recession proof. <laughs> March 11, 2020, Goldman predicts bottom at 2,450 points by mid-2020. March 15, four days later, Goldman predicts bottom at 2,000 by mid-2020. March 17, only two days later, Goldman declares global recession is underway. April 13, Goldman says bear market is over. They were just kidding about those mid-2020 bottoming predictions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, anytime you're a big bank like that and you make predictions, you're... I don't know. You you you're putting yourself up, right? Exactly. They get paid a lot of money for that. <laughs> I'm sure they uh they make a lot of money on those predictions as well. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. You've got to sort of claim something. So, as Bryce said, Lars, we we always like to wrap up with a final three questions. But before we get into that, if people are interested in following your work or learning more about you, are there particular websites or social media accounts that they can follow or go to? I guess I have a YouTube channel, so if you know how to spell my surname, that's a start. I also have a website, so yeah, so it should all be on there. I made some, uh, my publisher asked me to make some videos, um, so put some videos up on, on all these issues on YouTube. So that's a decent following, actually. So that's a place. And, and if people are wondering how to spell your surname, it will be in the episode title of the episode they're listening to right now, so just look at your phone or your computer. all right so Lars, we'll get into these final three questions the first one do you have any must read books and these can be investing or otherwise well i would say read billion dollar whale which is the book about this that's a finance related book but and speaking of which it makes goldman look not brilliant but it's essentially a book about a malaysian guy who defrauded the malaysian government out of billions of dollars and it's very, very reasonable. It's like, it's still sort of in a sense ongoing. It's very, very well written and just too astounding to be true, but it is. And the guy literally blew billions of dollars, literally spent it, which is just staggering. So, a good book. Very entertaining. That's actually Bryce's dream to spend a billion dollars. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> there you go. Well, it takes some doing. Billion Dollar Whale, we'll include that in the show notes. And uh, also, Lars, your own books, uh, I'm sure you consider must-reads as well. So people people (laughs) should get their hands on those. Sure, sure, by all means. Uh, The second question, do you have a go-to source for investing information? Not really. I know that sounds absurd, but it sounds crazy, but I don't really follow the markets very closely. Sometimes, frankly, honestly, before I go on shows like this, I have to look up what's happened. But generally, if there's movements in markets that are significant enough that it matters, you tend to hear about them. I don't have a Bloomberg terminal anymore or anything like that. So so, so not really. <laughs> I think that aligns with your uh, the philosophy that you were talking about. Set it and forget it, and then you don't need to worry about the, uh, the day-to-day noise. And obviously, for the active investment, the hedge funds I'm involved with, you get reports, right? And again, NAV statements and stuff, but, but no, not really. So then moving on to the the final question, if you think back to your younger self when you know you were saving your money and looking at buying that first government bond, what advice would you have for your younger self? For financial advice. I mean it can be it can be life advice as well. If we can go deep here, we can get very philosophical. <laughs> uh, well, I would say it's very important. I'll say why why I hate people saying it, but it's very important that you do something that you love because you just do a better job. And you enjoy life more. And the reason I, and maybe it's because I'm older now, I think it's, it's really, really true. But the reason it's always annoyed me when people say that is it kind of forgets that you also have to pay the mortgage, right? So I'd say with the caveat that if you can afford to do what you love, do what you love, because you'll do a far, far better job at it than if you do something you don't particularly enjoy. And I sort of feel lucky that I, I have the freedom to do that. And, 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 uh, and I do appreciate it. Uh, so I would tell my younger son self to more so than 
sort of, oh, you should be a doctor, you should be a lawyer or something that society tells you is a great career, sort of look at yourself and think about, well, what is it that I love and what do I find interesting? And those people tend, in my view, to do far, far better than people that don't approach life that way. Nice. Great way to finish, Lars. So it's been a fascinating conversation and we just really want to thank you for your time. Second time round, it's uh, all the way from London. So very much appreciate it. And there's been some great pieces of practical advice that I know a lot of our audience will be interested in. And it's also pretty straightforward to implement if they're keen to follow that sort of strategy. So as Ren said, if they want to check it out further, delve into your books. But yeah, just a massive thanks. And uh, we look forward to catching up later in the year to see if markets actually did go up. <laughs> <laughs> no, very good. Well, this guys, real pleasure and well done for doing this. So, so I'm sure you're helping a lot of people, which is great. Appreciate it, Lars. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.